kids and we have that same kind of fear of what if they don't make it and what if things go badly for them? What if we lose everything we've worked for and all that sort of thing? But, and, and certainly that's something to be concerned about. But more than the fear of failure, there's also a wisdom to being concerned about success because in a lot of ways, and we'll see as <coughs> Paul shares with the Christians here in Corinth today, success has more hazards and more dangers even than failure. Success can be a really scary place. Paul, in talking to Corinth, was talking to a church that was by all outward indications and by so many inward indications, a very successful church. Corinth was a great city to do church in because it was a place that loved philosophy and they, loved, they had great social lives, and this church was a hub of a lot of that. People were flocking to the church. They had so much going for them, and yet there were some problems that were popping up within the church that caused Paul to be hesitant about the direction that they were heading. We saw over the first few chapters, and even as two weeks ago as we were in this chapter, Paul was talking to them about everything that they had and saying, hey, you feel good about what you have, but he said, I'm concerned about you because you're boasting, you're acting like it came from you, that it wasn't given to you. Their boasting was leading them to being divisive and to citing one group of people against another. So Paul, in continuing in this vein, begins to talk to them about winners and losers. He starts out by talking to them about they've got it together. And then he talks about himself in kind of a shocking way and then wraps it up with a powerful statement after telling them that he's concerned for them. And so let's, sorry, it looks weird that I read this way, but it's the only way I've been able to read. Um, Look at beginning with verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, you are already full. The word there is a word that, that is used to indicate somebody who's eaten so much that there's just not room for anything else. He says, you guys are full. You've pigged out completely. You are already rich. You've arrived. You have a lot. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. So Paul starts out by saying, you guys, everything that you say about yourself, I'll say it about you. You're royalty. You've got it made. You're wealthy and successful and powerful. You've really got it together. You're rich and you're full and you're amazing. But now he starts to talk about himself in a way that at first probably to them seemed a little just self-denigrating, but then it got to be uncomfortable almost. And you realize that he was using irony here as he was comparing their image of themselves with his image of himself and as others would describe him. And so he, he begins there in verse 9 and says, you guys are reigning, but he said, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last 
as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world. The word there is the Greek word theater, or a show to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes, sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. See, he says, here you guys are rich and successful and powerful. But he said, for me and my buddies, for the apostles, we don't have it quite so well. He said, and a lot of times I think I am a show. It was almost like Paul was going, I feel like I'm in the Truman Show, so everyone can watch me fail. He goes, you know, I'm last, being paraded out in front of everyone as a, as a spectacle of pain and suffering and death. A lot of commentators believe that that verse there, verse 9, is using the imagery of the, um, of the gladiators that were so prominent in those days. They're in Corinth as well as in Athens and other places. Gladiators would battle all during the day. And then finally, the last spectacle, as Paul says, hey, I feel like I'm the last spectacle. The last spectacle was the last two gladiators standing would fight to the death. Someone would die. If you won, you got to live another day, but you had to fight tomorrow. So basically what it was was a show to watch people be destroyed. And again, Paul says, on the other hand, you guys are royalty. But he said, sometimes I think that God has displayed us last as men condemned to death, for we've been made a theater to the world, both to angels and to men. The whole universe is watching me die. And we're fools for Christ's sake, not you, you're wise. I feel stupid. People think I'm an idiot for what I do. We're weak, but you guys are strong. You're distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, the word there is blasphemed, we entreat. The word there is parakaleo. We comfort, we encourage, we put our arms around others and encourage them to hang in there and to keep going. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. The word there, filth, and the word for off-scouring, it was referring to after you clean something up, this was the scum that was left over that would be washed down into the streets scraped off the burnt plate and washed off into the street. He goes, that's what I feel like. Now, at this point, the Corinthians were probably going, I'm feeling a little guilty here. I'm feeling a little bad because guy Paul starts out talking like, yeah, we've got it made. And we're going, yeah, we do. Praise the Lord. And then he starts going, as far as I'm concerned, I'm kind of a loser. I'm a failure. I'm considered to be a fool. I'm an example, a show, to show how pathetic life can be. And, and he goes, 
you know, meantime, you guys doing well. I'm just being torn up and tortured and, and destroyed ultimately. What a contrast. Because Paul was a guy who at one time had everything going for him. He was completely brilliant. Someone who had the capacity to impress anyone. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, educated by Gamaliel, a brilliant man. And now here he was. One time his mother felt like, oh boy, he's going to be something special. But here he is just looking pathetic. And here are these Corinthians who had received the gospel from Paul's preaching and now they're looking at him and he's saying, I'm not like you. There's a difference in where I am and where you are. And I think their reaction would have been to go, ugh, I feel kind of bad. I guess I know what's coming next. Paul's going to take an offering. He wants us to give some of our fruits of success to him. I feel kind of bad that he's hasn't had any new clothes for a while or doesn't have a place to live. Maybe we ought to chip in and help him out. Or maybe he's just making us feel bad for what we have. This is sort of embarrassing. But Paul goes on and he says, I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, all kinds of people giving you good information, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul says, you're getting the wrong idea if while I contrast my apparent failure to your apparent success, if you think I'm trying to embarrass you, if you think I'm trying to make you feel guilty for what you have, if you think I'm trying to make you feel like you need to help me, he goes, that's not what I'm saying. He said, this is more than just a little gimmick I'm using to teach you. You have lots of teachers. But he said, you don't have many fathers. You don't have many people who care about you as deeply as I do. Whether they were people who had been personally led to Christ through Paul or whether indirectly, but they had discovered and known and experienced the compassion that he had for them. They weren't just an audience to him. These were people that he was pouring his life out for. And he said, I love you like you're my kid. And he said, I'm worried about you. I'm concerned about what's happening to you. What? We're, we're successful. We're doing great. Paul, you're famous around here because you used to pastor here. And everything's going well. They thought it was. But Paul looked at the situation and he said, you know, I look at it and he goes, I don't want you to feel bad about what you have. I don't want you to feel bad about your success. But he said, I have a deep concern for you. And my concern isn't that you would fail. But my concern is that you would continue to thrive and then face the struggles and the difficulties and the problems that come out of success. The hazards and dangers that would lie before you. And he said, I'm telling you this as a dad, like you're my kids. I'm really concerned. 
he finishes it off there in verse 16 and says, therefore I urge you, imitate me. What a, what a gutsy thing to say. Imitate me, the Greek word there is mimic. It's like, do what I do. Well, Paul, you're not a very good advertisement for what you do. Do you mean we should be homeless and broke? We should be beaten and tortured? Is that what you're telling us? No, not at all. Paul learned how to have a lot, and he learned how to have not much. But Paul knew that being successful can be really dangerous, and he wanted them to understand that, to ward off the dangers that come along with success. That's what this whole thing is about. First of all, where he started back in the verses that we looked at two weeks ago, and really what he's been saying for over three chapters, is you guys have it made, but you're getting proud, you're being boastful. He said, you're getting puffed up. You're taking what you have, and you're thinking somehow that makes you better than people who don't have. And that's one of the dangers of being blessed, of being successful, is as soon as I experience some success, I look at those poor people who aren't successful, and I think, you know, if they only knew what I know, if they would only do what I had done, if they had only made some different decisions somewhere along the road, then they could celebrate with me. They could have what I have. So often people who turn their lives around and they might be a failure, grow up poor, and then they turn things around and they're being, you know, really blessed. Or there are other people who maybe have a, an addiction and then they're able to gain victory over that addiction. So often the ones who have accomplished the most are the ones who are the least sympathetic toward those who are where they used to be. We look down at them and we go, you could be where I am if you were as smart as I am. So often those people will write books and put on videos and seminars to show people how they can have what they have. As soon as you can count on it, as soon as the church grows in any significant amount, Next thing, they're going to be having seminars to show other struggling little pathetic churches how they can become like us. And the implication behind all that is, I'm better than you. And that pride creeps in. And it was what was one of the things that was devastating the Corinthians. They couldn't stand people who were different than they are because they felt they were better. And so Paul says, okay, Let's, hear, let's talk about what you're really saying. Yes, you have a lot. Yes, you've done well. Yes, you're famous. And yeah, a lot of these other losers haven't. But he said, I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I'm one of the ones that you're looking down on. Oh, you wouldn't think about it that way because I'm not in your presence. But let's face it, you guys are looking down your nose at other people. You're looking down your nose at me. Take it a step further. You're looking down your nose at a homeless Savior named Jesus Christ. If you're looking down your nose at homeless people. And so Paul's going, look, 
Look at my life. Do you understand that when you're becoming proud and boastful, you're looking down at me? I'm your dad. You wouldn't even know Jesus Christ if, if I hadn't ministered to you. At least you wouldn't know him in the way that you know him now. What are you doing? It's such a danger for us when things go well to become proud. It's our, it's our human nature, really, that when we are doing well, we look down at those who we would say aren't doing well. And so Paul makes, he puts a face to it. And he says, if you're going to look down on anybody, then I guess you better look down on me because I'm hurting. If you're going to be so proud and boastful and say, well, I'm victorious. I'm living the victorious Christian life. He said, well, take a look at my life. I hurt every day of my life. I don't have anything, nothing to show for all the years of what I've done. Basically, other people are looking down on me, and Paul says, you might as well do the same. Because when you're looking down on others, you're looking down on me. It's the same thing that Jesus said when he said, you do it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. So Paul, in identifying his difficulties and struggles and pains, is not wanting to embarrass them, but letting them know, look what's happened. You're becoming a snob. You're becoming a prideful person who, even though I'm the one that has shared with you, effectively, and so much of what I've shared with you has led to your being blessed, yet now you think you're better than others. This is a danger that we need to constantly pay attention to. And it's a simple test. How do you look at people who don't have what you have, who haven't achieved what you achieve, who do things differently than you do? Are you being puffed up and prideful? Or do you look at them and recognize, I connect with them. I can relate to them because, you know, other people might look at me and see me as being a booming success. But deep down inside, I know what it feels like to fail. I know what it feels like to not measure up. And so I have a great connection with people who don't have with people who can't do, with people who are humiliated and embarrassed and the world looks on them and says, failure, hey, I don't look down on them. As soon as I start to, I'm in big trouble. As a church, as soon as we start to look down on other churches for not having it together like we do, for being so pathetic and lifeless as us, for being so inferior in terms of their understanding of what churches compared to what we are. Oh, be careful. It's a really subtle thing that happens from saying, I am so glad for what God has done for us to looking out and going, too bad he hadn't done it for those other losers. And we can do that personally. We can do it corporately. Paul looked on their prominence and said, I'm worried about you guys, my kids. If you are really wealthy and you have this responsibility of passing on what you have to your kids, then hopefully you've thought about this long and hard. 
How easy do I want to make it for my kids? Do I want them to learn to have to struggle? Or do I want to work really hard so they don't have to? You don't have to look around very much to find examples of what happens to people who have everything handed to them. They think that they're better. They take on a a mode of superiority, and we can do that spiritually as well. And in in every way we can do it. And Paul's just going, I'm worried about how you're going to handle what you have, what God has done for you. A second thing that I think Paul makes clear here that he is concerned about, and it's another danger to success. It's another hazard to having it together is not only will you look in a, in a proud and boastful way toward others who don't have what you have, but you become completely confused as to how to be led and you will be so easily led by the flesh instead of by the Spirit. See, you look at Paul's life. The decisions that he made, the career choices that he pursued were choices that led him to this life of pain and suffering and poverty and misery. Now, would you say he just didn't hear from God and the Corinthians were hearing from God? Of course not. But what happens when life gets really comfortable, we can start to decide what God wants us to do based on whether or not it's comfortable. And Paul clearly hadn't done that. He could have chosen a very comfortable lifestyle for himself. He had it made. But he walked away from that lifestyle because God called him to do something else. And God help us when we start to discern the voice of God based on whether or not things are easy and things are comfortable. And Paul knew this was something that the Corinthians had already fallen into and were becoming guilty of, is they were living life comfortably. They were living life in a way that it was easy. You know, one of the teachings that I think in the church has been so destructive and I've probably been guilty of it myself inadvertently in communicating sometimes to people. But when we talk about knowing God's will, I've read a hundred books on knowing God's will and listened to a lot of preachers talking about it. And you know, most of the time what it comes down to in the final analysis is that thing we have where we say, well, I just, you feel a peace about it. And we give people the idea that when it's God it's easy. When it's God, it just flows and it's so smooth and that's what you're looking for. You're going, I'm in the zone and so I know it's God. Paul would say, you think I ever feel like I'm in the zone? (laughs) You think I was singing in prison there in Philippi because I was just, I couldn't get a cool tune out of my head? You know, uh, it's like, he was being beaten. He was, he was being killed, literally. People were trying to kill him everywhere. And he doesn't talk about having this just, you know, it's really neat. I just decide what I want to do, and whatever seems like it feels right to me, then that's what I do. No, that's not how Paul lived. That's how the Corinthians were living. You can live that way. We get confused because there is a peace 
that passes understanding. There is a peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the leading of the Spirit. God doesn't lead with peace. God provides peace when we are obedient to do what He tells us to do. But often what He tells us to do will not be comfortable or simple or convenient or look to be successful. Often God calls us to do things that hurt. In fact, life hurts no matter how you live your life. The real question is, how do you decide what God wants you to do? How do you hear the voice of God? And the Corinthians were at a point where they had it down. They had it together. It's like, yeah, we just feel a peace, and it's great, and I feel wonderful. Paul would go, I'm worried about you guys, because it's not that way. There's a peace that follows obedience, but the peace isn't what is the obedience. Jesus told his disciples, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's not comfortable. That's not convenient. And it usually, often, it won't look successful. It may look like when you do what God tells you to do, it may look absolutely foolish. Paul said, I'm a fool for Christ. It may make you look like the biggest loser in the world. And people may look at what you're doing and saying, how could you give up this opportunity to take this opportunity? You could have it made right now. Instead, you're choosing to go a way that hurts and is difficult. Now, don't get me wrong. Pain is not the beacon to lead us to God's will either. There are people who, in misunderstanding this teaching, will then say, okay, then if it feels good, it must not be God. What God wants me to do is always going to be the most miserable thing. Well, that's not fair to God, and it's really not true either. It's what causes people to go and deliberately live lives of poverty, for instance. Okay, then if I don't want to live my life to get as many assets as possible, then I guess what I'm supposed to do is give up everything and go wear a robe and live in a cave or something. No, that's not it either. It's whether what you do leads to great success or great wealth or whether it leads to poverty and pain and suffering isn't the point. It's you hear from God and you do what God tells you to do. To do anything otherwise is to run the risk of being led astray by your flesh. You know, the thing about life is if you're doing it right, it hurts. Just like sports. Just like so many other things. Just like business. Just like almost any area of life. If you're doing it right, it's not easy. If you're investing like everyone else invests, you're a bad investor. If you're making products like everybody else is making, you're a bad businessman. If you're doing what everyone else does, you won't be successful in any area. But the, but the thing is, what Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthians is, don't follow your flesh and think it's the Spirit. He develops this again through the rest of the book. Don't start to live life that's motivated by avoiding discomfort and pain. 
And I think a lot of us, we're built this way. Our flesh does this to us. If something feels uncomfortable, it feels like it's wrong. feels like, oh, this can't be. It's why most people, a few months after they get married, are wondering whether they married the right person. Because you marry somebody and you're like, oh, God brought us together because we're so happy together. And then we're together and it's like, this isn't happy at all. I was, I was completely, I had the wrong idea. This hurts. This is painful. Something went wrong. Somewhere I got off the track. No, not at all. It's supposed to hurt. It just does. In fact, Satan's best tool is diverting our attention by a little bit of discomfort to take us off track from what matters most. This is something that happens in a lot of sports, for instance, where like in, in fighting, guys will often do things. In the, in the sport of wrestling, one thing that guys will do is they'll learn how to hurt you. In a way. You're not allowed. The rules of wrestling, you can't, I'm not talking about pro wrestling, I'm talking about <laughs> real wrestling, but you can't just do something to torture someone. But at the same time, as you grab each other by the neck and you're maneuvering each other around in what they call a tie in wrestling, you can grind your knuckle or your thumb into a shoulder blade, catch a nerve in there. It's not going to cause someone to just quit, but it causes them to think about their shoulder instead of their shot. And ultimately, you can take them off their game that way. It's the same thing that happens to a lineman in football who hits someone away from the play. And they just, little po pokes and prods and elbows and things like that, that it's not for that play, but it's to cause the other player to just lose interest in playing the game and in doing what they need to do. In fighting now, you'll see almost all ultimate fighters shave their heads, except they leave just a little stubble. You know, I, after I had my surgery, I quit shaving because it was really painful to shave. But after a while, after a few days, my beard was driving me nuts. It was just scraping against this, this um, contraption I have on. And, and, and I was thinking about these guys. That's what they do. These fighters, they, you're not allowed to just do pain compliance moves necessarily, but just rubbing your hair across someone's face is really uncomfortable. You women know what it feels like when your husband hasn't shaved for a couple of days. It's just, it's torture. It's not going to kill you, but believe me, it takes you out of the mood of love. If a guy, <laughs> if a guy wants to get affection from his wife, Sometimes it's better to go shave first, you know, brush your teeth and things like that. On the other hand, if what you want to do is to repel other people, then a little bad, you know, uh, personal habits can be a plus. You see this in co professional card players. They do things that are deliberately irritants. If you watch, now I would never watch it, but if you... No, I do, sure. But uh, you watch... You watch these professional poker players, and some of them will have a costume that looks weird. Or they'll have a little nervous tick, or they'll sit there and talk under their breath, or they'll make jokes and things like that. Now, some of you who are just naturally obnoxious just think they're being personalities. But in reality, they know it's going to cause the other players to not think about what they're doing, but instead they're going, this guy's driving me nuts. And that's kind of what Satan does in our lives. 
See, it's okay to use poker if you tie it in with Satan. But, um, <laughs> but he irritates us just to see what we're going to do, just to take us off our game, just to get us off track. And instead of me thinking about, God, what do you want me to do in this hand, then, then I'm going, what's up with this guy? What's he doing? What's happening there? Again, the danger is that we start to think, Life isn't supposed to hurt. I'm supposed to always feel good. I'm supposed to always be in the zone and feel the peace. And again, if that was what it was about, Paul wouldn't have done what he did. If that was what it was about, Jesus would not have died for your sins and mine because he wasn't in some zone where he really felt it. I was thinking about, about that this week coming home from the hospital, you know, when I, I was in the hospital after my surgery, they gave me a button, and you could just push the button, and you get morphine, and I, part of me was like, oh, cool, you know, this should be great, and then I thought, you know, I think I'm going to wait and see if I really need it, I'll go ahead and push the clicker, and kind of, part of me was disappointed when I, they let me go home, and I had never pushed it, it's like, Come on, a little hit of morphine wouldn't have hurt anything. But, but I, uh, I was realizing, you know, I didn't really need it. Now, it's not that I didn't hurt. It's that I don't think I hurt bad enough to need morphine. Now, they sent me home with a couple of different pills that one of them is a muscle relaxant and another one is hydrocodone, a, you know, a drug of choice of Rush Limbaugh and others. So, you know, a very addictive drug that takes away pain. And I thought, and I took each of those wants, and I'm like, I'm feeling pretty good. And then I thought, okay, when do I take it again? Now, I've had friends whose lives have been devastated by drugs like that, and, and so I was a little hesitant. But pretty soon, I was feeling really uncomfortable and irritated, and I'm like, you know, I haven't taken my medicine. So I went ahead and took the medicine, and I felt great. But then, you know, another four or five hours later, I'm starting to feel that way again, and I'm going, you know, I'm really not, it's not like I'm in this really bad pain. It's just I feel better on medicine than I do off medicine. And I thought this is exactly how it happens, how people become addicted. It's not that, oh, I can't stand the pain. It's that I feel a lot better when I'm on the drugs than when I'm not on the drugs. And so then I just, I haven't taken anything since. And it's like, okay, yeah, sometimes I hurt, but it's not that bad. I mean, I, I hurt a lot more before my surgery than after my surgery. But I thought, you know, that's a lot of times how we live our lives. It's like, hmm, things are a little uncomfortable. Something must be wrong. Paul didn't have that attitude. He was concerned that the Corinthians not fall into that attitude. Because if you're following your flesh, it will lead you to make all kinds of really foolish decisions. It'll cause you to miss an awful lot of what God wants to do in your life. And so we see hazards of success. First of all, that pride that comes in that causes us to think we're superior to someone else. Then secondly, as, as Paul lays out for them and makes it clear, hey, if you're following God, it doesn't mean you avoid pain and you go to comfort. You do what feels good. You look for that peace. That's very deceptive. The third thing that I want to draw your attention to quickly is look how Paul responded to what happened to him. 
He said in verse 12, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, the Greek word there is blaspheme, we entreat. The Greek word there is a word that's translated comfort or encourage, parakaleo. He's saying, when people do bad things to us, I don't do bad things back. Now, again, why in this context is he saying, imitate me, here's what I do? Because one of the hazards of success is that you can very easily become one of the bad guys. You can very easily become like that which you despise. Like that which you would say pride, pridefully, I will never become what that person is. And yet, as you get more comfortable, as life's going your way, people start to give you a lot of attention and accolades. You start then, you start saying, yeah, I deserve that. You start to believe your own press clippings, and, and now you're going, you know, there are certain things I just won't put up with. There are certain kinds of treatment I just won't take. And so if someone's going to treat me this way, I am going to treat other people this way. And this is that transforming power that happens in the life of someone who, out of sometimes excess comfort, and living a life that's designed toward making life as comfortable as it can be, the next thing we know, we look in the mirror and we go, who is this person? I'm doing things that I thought I would never do. I'm acting like the people that I've always thought I'm better than. And when they respond to me in a certain way, then I respond to them in a certain way. And Paul is saying here, it's so important that you not become one of them that you not become one of the bad guys, that you not be corrupted by your success. One of my favorite quotes from Lord Acton, who was a, who was a British politician and an interesting man, if you've ever read the story of his life. He was a cohort of Gladstone and, and a real powerful influence in the nation of Great Britain. But most people know Lord Acton because of one quote. And the quote is, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Lord Acton said that quote in a letter to a friend of his, actually writing about the Pope at the time. Acton was a devout Catholic, but he was concerned there in 1870 when, when the Pope declared papal infallibility. The Pope said, whatever the Pope does and says is right. Now, he never left the Roman church, but he was deeply concerned about what happens when everything that you say is supposed to be right. And it's in that context that he said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But that quote has been repeated so many times. It's maybe one of the quotes in, that is used more in politics than any other quotation, because we see what happens to people who come into power. They so often are well-meaning and with good intentions, and yet you give success to people, and they sometimes can't handle it. And that power makes them like the people that they campaigned against. You see this in politics in our country. Everyone who runs for office 
does it on the basis of, I'm not like those jokers that are in office now. I will do things differently. And yet, when is it in our history that someone ever came into office and did things differently? If a politician is running on the, on the basis of saying, we're going to cut government spending, they're not going to cut government spending. Because once they get into office and they feel that power, they realize, I can spend money on some good things. And more and more expenditures happen, and you go, wait, I thought you weren't like the other guys. Well, once you get in there, you are one of the other guys. Power corrupts. And there are very few people who can handle power successfully. Very, very few people who could handle absolute power, no accountability, not having to answer to anyone. And that's Paul's concern for them as well. And he says, I'm concerned for you that you will start acting like the people who you don't like. By the way, the most profound part of Lord Acton's quote, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, most people don't know. The next line as he was writing in this letter, he said, so great men are almost always bad men. Wow, that's, that's heavy and, and true because there are very few people who can handle power. There are very few people who can avoid being corrupted by managing power. It's why God never wanted the people to have a king. It's why God wanted to be the ruler. He's the only one who has the heart and the capacity to be able to handle that kind of power. But Paul's concern for the people was that that would happen to them, that they would become corrupted by their own success. And in fact, as we read about the church in Corinth, that's exactly what happened. Oh, it started out as a great church, but gradually they became prominent instead of great. There were a lot of people there, and they became really known for being a good, friendly place where you could go. Now, you talk about a, a church that's seeker-friendly. How about one where, hey, before communion, we have a big dinner, and everybody gets drunk, and you pig out all you want. It's just awesome. You can act like a pig and get all drunk and do it in the name of, it's our religion. So popular church, right? Worked well. For them, the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, became basically just drinking a toast to Jesus. Hey, here you go. There were, as we go through the book, we'll see so many of the things that were happening. There was a, a case of incest that was going on, and they were like, well, we don't want to offend people. So look at us, it's kind of nice. Incestuous people are welcome here. Now, I'm sure that started out with good intentions. And we don't ever want to be the kind of church whereby people feel like, I can't go there because I'm a bad person. We need to realize we're all bad people, but at the same time, how about taking a stand? How about sometimes telling people what you're doing is destroying you? You're killing yourself. You realize what you're doing. But the church in Corinth became very popular in a popular city because you couldn't distinguish them from the community around them. They looked just like Corinth. They look just like their neighbors. As a result, people love to come. But are lives being changed? No, they weren't. 
The only lives that were being changed is the lives of the Corinthian Christians were becoming more and more like the lives of the people around them so that you ultimately couldn't tell the difference. And Paul was deeply distressed over that as he saw that happening, and we see it throughout the rest of the book. And we're fooling ourselves if we just read it and go, boy, was that Corinth messed up. Boy, those guys were really a mess. The truth is we are blessed in many ways in our society, in our church. And I'm concerned for us. I'm concerned for me and for you as Paul was concerned because I know what happens. When things are going well, you can start to become prideful. You can start to boast. You can start to look down your nose at others. The next step that happens as that happens is there you are, you're successful, and now you're driven by the desire to hang on to your success, to do whatever people are impressed by, to put on the best show that you possibly can. Remember, that's what Paul was talking to them about earlier there in Corinth. He goes, when I came, I could have put on a show, but I didn't because I wanted you to get the simplicity of the message. But as we are blessed and as God causes us to grow and things like that, it's so easy to think, little show wouldn't hurt. We could polish things up a little. And, and very subtly, we can start to decide what God wants us to do based on what feels good. As a pastor, I can tell you, there are times when I, God calls me to say something that I know people won't like, that I know will offend certain people. And you have to pick your spots. I don't just, I mean, I know some people think I deliberately offend. No, I really don't. I'm really trying not to. But at the same time, sometimes I just have to say something, and I know I'm going to get flack for it. And there's a temptation to go, you know, I don't have, the church was smaller, it was easy to, and entertaining to deal with offended people, but, you know, now it's becoming really impractical, so I better just clean up my act a little bit, cut a few corners and polish things off. And see, if we do that, if that's what happens, if, if no one ever comes here and gets offended, if everyone comes here and every Sunday and every Wednesday night and any other time we get together, we all sit down and we go, boy, do I feel good because he ripped the right people and he didn't make me uncomfortable all we did was sit in church and talk about all the people at other churches and how messed up they are. I love that. There's a danger to success. As, as we begin to make our decisions based on what people want, based on how they will respond, based on what's most comfortable, you know, I'm here today because, not because this is the most comfortable thing I could be doing, but because I felt like God gave me a message that he wanted me to share with people. And so, yeah, it's, I'm not in great comfort right now. My recliner would feel better right now. But at the same time, it's like, you know, I didn't sign on for serving God to make my life easy or comfortable. I didn't, I don't look to what, what works best for me to decide what I'm going to do in serving God. I have to do what he tells me to do. I have to follow him. And Paul had that down. He said, imitate me. Imitate me. Don't live your life that way. And finally, for us, again, there's a great hazard 
of as we see what God is doing in our lives, that we could then start to become like the people that we used to despise. We could become just as angry against angry people as they are against us. And Paul says, don't start looking like the world. Don't start acting that way. You are to be distinguished by responding in a way that surprises people, that throws them off, that when they blaspheme you, you encourage them. And when you lose that distinction because you just think you're above being treated that way, you're in trouble. You're in danger of losing your identity and who you are. Let's pray. Lord, as we read Paul's description here and, and we, we catch the passion that he had for the Corinthians and we see the contrast between how life was working for him and how it was working for them and it gives us pause, it makes us think about our lives. We're blessed. But are we boastful and prideful in our blessing? Are we starting to use blessing as what leads and guides us? What's easy? What's comfortable? Are we becoming in our arrogance like the people that we swore we would never be like? The people we thought we were better than? 